treasure can call out upon our God in prayer. Let us stand this evening as we read the scripture text from Luke 18. Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. Luke 18, 18 through 30. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. When Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children For the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, we do and pray that you would now illuminate our hearts to this text, that we may go forth and glorify you and grow in conformity to know Christ and to his image. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, surely all of you have heard the uh, story of the rich young ruler, right? Has everyone heard that? Well, you probably have because it's in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And notice this is not a parable. Although Jesus had just been reciting several parables, this is a real event that took place. And Jesus used it to bring us some critical lessons, of course, in his word. Now, foremost, we see that man man will never receive salvation and eternal life by his works. Salvation, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, comes by faith and repentance, which in themselves are only given as a gift of God by the grace and unmerited favor of God. Secondly, we see that we must be on guard for idols in our life, which can blind us, derail us, Cut and cut us off from the saving grace of Christ. And lastly, we see that following Christ will require us to leave something behind, to, f- to forsake something, to sacrifice something, possibly many things, to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. So with that inter- introduction, let us consider this man who comes to Jesus. Who is this man that comes to Jesus to ask him a question? Well, we can see from the Luke account here that this man was a ruler. In the Matthew account, it tells us this ruler was young and he was rich. And from the Mark account, 
we are told this, this rich young ruler came running to Jesus and actually falls down and bows before him. So in the beauty of the word of God, bringing all these accounts together, we learn that this man approaches Jesus with a question, doesn't he? And from the text itself, we see that this was a very successful man. Not just in business or monetarily, we could say, but in power. He was a ruler, and all rulers at any level have some form of authority. Yet with all this, he was still young. But he comes with an urgency running up to Jesus. He comes with respect, and you could even say a measure of humility by kneeling in front of Jesus. And his question is very interesting. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's an intriguing question, because this man seems to have everything that anyone in the world would want, right? He has money, he has power, he has influence, he has youth. Doesn't he have everything he wants and needs in life? But he's running. He's seemingly almost in desperation, pleading, imploring Jesus for an answer to this question of eternal life. And in this passage, we see that this young man was not just successful and respected in the land, but he was, he was also a good Jew. In response to Jesus' question, he said he had kept all the commandments from his youth. And he, he knew them. And so it seems this man had some measure of obedience to God. He had some inclination to work and follow the commandments of God. And we're going to see how Jesus presses him on this point to see what his true motivation is in his obedience. Now we must consider the question. He's desirous, it seems, of eternal life. That's what he asks Jesus for. How can I get eternal life? And in several ways, we have to say this man actually shows some pretty good characteristics, doesn't he? First, he notices in this question, he's missing something. He, he doesn't have eternal life, perhaps he thinks, and he, or he's not sure if he's going to get it. So he, he, he desires it. This is, it's a good thing. But despite all he's gained in life, he's, he's not sure if he's saved not sure if he has salvation that's what to a jew that's what eternal life is equated to salvation but something tells him he must not be fully at peace with god something is burdening him he runs to christ we might say maybe he has some emptiness some something upon his heart and he doesn't know how to rectify this dilemma so in perhaps what we could call another commendable action he goes to Jesus to ask. And Jesus is a pretty good source to ask a good question, isn't it? You know, when many people face some challenging questions in this life, even about eternity, they go to the wrong places, don't they? Some people go to, well, we heard in this morning, Leviticus 19, some people go to spiritists and mediums. Some people try to just escape the idea of eternal life by running to fantasy, to escapism, to recreation, to, to drugs, to delusion, whatever, adventure, wild living. I don't want to think about eternal life. Let me just have some fun here, and maybe that'll distract me enough. But not this man. He went, he went to Jesus. He went to the source to get truth. It's commendable. 
And in fact, perhaps another commendable action, notice he comes unashamed, doesn't he? Remember, when did Nicodemus come to Jesus? At night, yeah. And some, some even these days, maybe under conviction, maybe under burden, they, they come, they, they, they by faith perhaps make their way into a church, but then sneak in a few minutes late, sit in the back row. Don't want anybody to see me. But not this man. In broad daylight, he runs to Jesus, throws himself before him, and, and asks this bold question right in front of Jesus. He asks him, what should I do? In front of everybody, pleading for an answer. But ultimately, well, the one thing we do know about this man is that he knew. He knew about working hard, didn't he? He knew about following the rules and that he received good things in life when he did those things. He worked hard. He became rich. He followed God's law. He even became respected and a ruler in the land. And so he was confident that when faced with this emptiness in his heart, this dilemma about eternal life, there was something else he must do to get it. That's, what he, that's all he knew. I must work I must do something, Jesus, to get this, because that's how I've got everything else in life. So just tell me, Jesus, what I have to do, and I'll get eternal life. That's all this man knew. Work, do, and I get things in life. And of course, this is one side of the evil of works righteousness, isn't it? That somehow, by our good deeds, by our self-driven work, we can somehow gain God's favor and be saved. But the secondary evil that's born out of works righteousness that we see in this young man's heart is a love for self, a self-merit, and a self-fulfilling work in life to gain things. Rather than a love for God, but a true faith, as we know in God alone for salvation, comes only through faith and repentance. So how does Jesus respond to this rich young ruler's question? In verse 18, Jesus responds good to, to, this, to this young man's question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? In verse 19, Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. Jesus stops this young man dead in his tracks, doesn't he? He doesn't let him even go any farther in considering his question. Jesus takes the opportunity to see what this man truly believes. And there's been actually much debate, if, if you're to study this passage, as to why Jesus brings up this question. But I, I, I want to relate to you, I think it's for two purposes as, as I've studied this. One is that Jesus focuses on the question of good is sort of a test, Right? To show those who are listening, because there was certainly a large crowd nearby, as we're told earlier in Luke, tells us something about the man's heart. Because as a good Jew, this young man knew that there was only one who was good. And who was that? God, right? We, we read that in Psalm 14, don't we? The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there is any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. So nobody's good except for one, and that's God. And so 
if no one can be called good except for the Holy One of Israel, Jesus is saying, wait a minute, are you, are you calling me God? Because you just called me good teacher. Right? Or, better said, if you truly believe that I am Lord, then you will follow me and do whatever I ask you to do. Which is what Jesus later says, isn't it? But if I'm not your God, if I'm not your king, then you might not like what I'm about to say. Now, secondly, why does Jesus ask this question about goodness, about calling him good? It seems that while testing the man, Jesus is also pushing back on him for even using this word, isn't it? It's like Jesus is a little bit almost surprised he, he, he used this word good. Now, as we've mentioned This man was really into doing good things. He knew about doing good things. He saw himself rewarded for it. He knew in life, you do good, you get good. You get good things in life. You're a good boy, life will go well. You're bad, hmm, who knows? You don't work hard, who knows? It might not go that well. And there's some truth to this, absolutely, right? We reap what we sow, absolutely. Yet in the matter of salvation... It's not our works that save us, is it? But it's the grace of God that we've been saved through faith and not that of ourselves, that it is the gift of God that no man may may boast. So Jesus is pushing back on the young ruler for using this word good because Jesus, I believe, is saying, that's your whole identity, isn't it? You're all about just goodness and being good to get good things. So Jesus is almost like, I don't really want you to use that word anymore. He's pushing back in this way. Because good was all this man knew. Is being good all that is needed in this life? Jesus was saying. Is being good the way to salvation? Is being good the answer to your question you just asked me about eternal life? So you can see how this word good is kind of a charged word, isn't it? Even in our, in our culture, isn't it? it? It's really the prevailing theology in America amongst anyone who would call themselves a Christian that's not, perhaps. Because you could go to anyone in our culture and say, are you a good person? And what would they say? Yes, of course, I'm a good person. I mean, they would generally say, I'm better than Hitler, so thus I'm good. But... This builds to the question of salvation. You ask someone on the street, are are you going to heaven? And they will likely say what? I don't believe in heaven. Or yes, I'm going to heaven. Why? Because I'm a good person. I'm not, look, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. So I'm pretty good in general, comparatively to everybody else. But inherently, what are people saying? Because of my goodness, I am sort of justified by God, and therefore, he will receive me. I mean, they probably wouldn't use those terms, but that's, what, that's what's being said. Of course, we know this is a false gospel. This is heresy, even though it's predominant in the land. And this, is the, this is really the religion of cults and every other false religion in the world, isn't it? Right? You do things, you get saved, period. You don't, you don't get saved. It's pretty simple. But Jesus pushes back on this vile theology right from the get-go upon this man. And I believe in America, we really need to be on guard for this. We're all Americans here, 
And we need to be on guard for this because this is very persuasive, pervasive in our culture. And particularly in our own lives, okay, in our hearts, we have, we have, what do we have? I mean, all of us in this room, we have freedom compared to our brothers that were just prayed for, certainly in Yemen. We have freedom, we have money, we have material things, we're not starving to death. And so life generally goes pretty well, doesn't it? In general, life's pretty good. I mean, you could say our cup overflows, but what can this lead to in our hearts? It can even lead to that prevailing theology in our culture, works righteousness. And here's how that goes. It says, well, I've been pretty good. I mean, I've been a pretty good person, right? I haven't murdered anybody. So, oh, life's going pretty well. I mean, I, I have freedom, I have money, I have food, I have all this stuff. We need, to, we need to watch our, guard our hearts for that because God is tremendously generous and blessing us. We don't want to go down that line of thinking, oh, I've, done, I've been a pretty good person, therefore God has rewarded me. I have all kinds of comforts, so that's just what I need to keep doing to gain God's continued blessing. But of course, there's such untruth and emptiness in this theology Because the spiritual reality of our souls, as we know, is that this is not the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is what our brother read earlier. That he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. There's nothing nothing of our goodness in there, is it? Nothing mentioned of our work in there. By his stripes we are healed, that is the merciful work of Christ of salvation to us. Or, as Paul said to Peter in Galatians, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Well, Jesus then moves on with the rich young ruler to really answer his question about eternal life. In verse 19, he goes on and says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And what does the rich young ruler say in response? All these things I've kept from my youth. I'm good. I'm good, Jesus. Very interesting response. In fact, if someone asked you, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let's say you went down to Walmart. I mean, this would be random, but somebody walked up to you and said, what, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What, what would you say? What would you say to them? You'd probably tell them the gospel, I, I would hope, or, or something like that, right? But that's not what Jesus does. He really challenges the man because he knows the man's heart. Jesus is ultimately seeking This question, does this man have faith? Does this man have faith? And one test of faith is obedience to God's law, right? Right? For Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. But notice Jesus asks him questions. What questions does Jesus ask? Take a look at that. It's very interesting. What's that? He asks him questions from the second table of the law, we could say. Remember the Ten Commandments? Right? What are the first three? Those, ha- those we call the first table of the law, those have to do, deal with our relationship to God vertically. Right? Ten commandments, one, two, and three. 
vertically. Our relationship with God. Call that the first table of the law. The second table of the law, commandments 4 through 10, deal with our relationship with man horizontally. Jesus goes right to the second table of the law. Now, why is that? Why do you you go there? Well, knowing this man's heart, Jesus was questioning the young man on his obedience, wasn't he? And of course he said, I've I've done all these things. I've kept all these laws. No, like, no worries. I got it. Check. But again, his works righteousness mindset is exposed, isn't it? He says, yes, I've been a very good Jew and all these people know that. Look at me. Look at my success. But of course, this would be a great time, if we could, to insert one of those Ray Comfort videos, wouldn't it? Right? What is that? The way of the master, right? He's so good at that, right? He said, so, so let me ask, you've never lied? You've never stolen anything? You've never, you've never dishonored your parents? Even when you were a baby in the crib, you were perfect. From you, see, from his youth, from my youth, I, yes, I've mastered all those. No. No, we know that Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in her heart. And anger in the heart towards a brother is breaking that commandment of murder. And so Jesus is teaching here that no one, no one can perfectly obey the law. He's drawing this out of the man's heart. But this man was confident. Nope, I'm perfect in my righteousness. But Jesus was saying, no, you're not. And this is why we all need a savior, isn't it? It is impossible for us to save ourselves. We cannot go on very long trying to live in the perfect obedience of the law for Christ. Even he said himself, I, only I am the way, the truth, and the life. We cannot obey the law to save ourselves. Only through the perfect obedience of Christ imputed to us the power of the Holy Spirit by which we are redeemed before Almighty God and then through the death and resurrection of Christ, God's holy wrath is satisfied. But never through our work. It's by the work of Christ. So Jesus, by asking the man these questions, he really exposes the heart of the rich young ruler, doesn't he? For the man was, he was confident in his work, in his obedience to save him, to earn God's favor. But now it was time for Jesus to show the man that he lacked something critical to have true faith in God. So let's look at verse 22. When Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Now where does Jesus go? Now he goes to the first table of the law, doesn't he? Just goes right to the first of the Ten Commandments, doesn't he? You shall have no other gods before me. And this man lacked something that proved he had, he had jumped over that commandment, hadn't he? He had, lacked, he, had, he, he had exposed, Jesus has exposed this man's lacking faith 
but primarily his repentance. For Jesus, knowing his heart, he knew that riches, wealth, his possessions were an idol in his life. Something this young man had to have, something he could not let go of, something he could not turn from. He could not repent of having another God to whom he bowed and forsake his wealth. And so he went away sorrowful. You may remember, as Peter said, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This rich young ruler did not go to Jesus to experience times of refreshing because he did not repent. And so he went away sorrowful. Jesus just laid right before him. You think you're so obedient following all these commandments. But look, you have stepped over my very first, the very first commandments, which is you have, you have another God in your life that you cannot let go of because he could not give up his riches. He went away sorrowful. Faith and repentance. This is it. And this is really the question for us today to consider. Even for all of us that are saved, is there an idol? Is there something blocking our communion with God? Is repentance a continual work in our heart? Turning from sin and self and turning to God. Repentance is not a one-time act when you were justified before God. Is it? Are you going to have to repent of something else? Yes, it's a continual work. It's how God works sanctification in our lives. This man's idol was wealth. question for us tonight is, what's ours? What would Jesus walk up and say to us? Right? What, what is God quickening in your heart that you must repent of and turn from now or tonight? What do you need to, to consider? Jesus told this man what he had to do. It's the question for us. Are faith and repentance the daily walk of our lives? Or is there competition to that? For this man, it was money. It was his wealth. It was his power, his position. Is your heart burdened by what you want? Is it burdened by what you don't have? Is it burdened by other people? Or? Is the grace of God in your life, your continual grace that is sufficient for all? So the rich young ruler walks away very sorrowful. Then Jesus goes on in the Luke passage. This, this portion is not so much in the other Matthew and Mark passages, but in Luke we have the extended portion here of then how Jesus speaks about this to his disciples When Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, well, who then can be saved? But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Jesus, of course, remarks that it's very difficult. He actually uses the word impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, was Jesus speaking against being rich at all? Should, we, should a Christian never be rich? 
we could probably all be guilty of that then, right? But no, he was speaking specifically to this man's idol. Because this was the stumbling block for this man, right? The, the, the other God that this man worshipped was in the place of the true and living God, preventing him from right faith and trusting in God. This is what he wouldn't repent from. So we must be on guard, brothers and sisters. Something may spring up in your life, something you love, could be money, could be a position, could be a person. It could be, it could be actually something fine, good. It could be something righteous. But if that thing becomes like a God in your life that you must have, that you serve, it is an idol. And for the rich young ruler, it was money. And due to this God in his life, Jesus says entering the kingdom of heaven was impossible. And Jesus explains this word impossible by giving the picture of what the people at the time, it was probably the largest animal that they knew of, right? In the area, it was a camel. And then he just took what was probably the smallest aperture that they knew of, and it was a needle. And, and, and he, he brought this illustration. Try to take this large critter you know of and put it through the smallest opening you know of. And what would people say? Well, it's just impossible. And it is impossible for us hung up for the man who is burdened and is serving another God, not repenting of it, to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the people ask, who can be saved? Jesus says the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And this is true faith. And, and I see there's a lot of children here tonight. Amen? So children... You read of the great miraculous stories of God, right? Maybe you have a a storybook, or maybe you hear your parents reading these out of the Bible, maybe you hear them in church, but what are some some of the amazing things God's done? He's parted the Red Sea, right? Remember remember when God, through Elisha, he, he provided that endless oil for the widow and her son? Remember that? Oil that just kept going. This is an amazing miracle. Remember when Jesus made blind men who'd never seen before to see? It's amazing. Miracles of God. So do you believe God can do supernatural works? Yes. Yes. Do you believe he can do them in your life? Do you believe that anything could limit God from doing amazing works? We must see and believe with eyes of faith. We can't be dulled and restricted by the natural considerations of man. No, this is a trusting in man, isn't it? This is, in trusting in the, this is trust in the world and the earth. We believe in the resurrecting power of God Almighty who raised us from death to life. If he did that, how many more things can he do? Can he, can he heal uh, Leanne Barlow from cancer? Absolutely. You can do all kinds of things. What are we told? That you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his, his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when, which, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all principalities and power and might and dominion. 
That's the power of God, and that's the same power of God at work today. So children, God will work in your lives mightily. He will. Things which are impossible with men are possible with God. So I encourage you children, trust in God, not in men. Trust in God. Trust in God. Do not follow man. Do not rest your hope in man, but in God. May we turn to God and draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. As we read in Psalm 33 this morning, we fear the Lord and are saved. Now you notice in verse 28, Peter then chimes in. Peter is there, apparently, and he says, Lord, see, we have left all and followed you. Which was true, wasn't it, in Peter's life? Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parent or brother or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the new life of being born again in Christ. We will be called to do what? To leave something, to forsake something. To to maybe turn away from something in this life and to follow Jesus. It's exactly, you notice, what he called the uh, rich young ruler to do. Sell all your possessions. Come and follow me. We must recognize in our life those things which take us away from the kingdom of God. And there are things that take us away from the kingdom of God. Those things which thwart our pilgrim journey of following Christ. Again, for the rich young ruler, it was money. What is it for you? It might be money, but God's word says not to put our hope in uncertain riches. It might be media, but God's truth tells us to set our mind upon things above. It might be lofty goals or fame, but the scripture tells us not to think of ourselves more highly than others. For we are humbled by the saving work of Christ in our life. Are these things in this life that keep us from God quickening in our hearts tonight? Are we holding on to something in this life, something in this world that's a barrier, a challenge, a difficulty to entering the kingdom of God? Notice from our text, it can just be one thing. It could be one thing in your life and God will surely expose it by his love for you. We may be obedient to Christ in many things. We may be wholly devoted to him in 70 areas of our life, but it's the one thing, it's the one idol, the one fear, the one besetting sin, the one passion of the flesh, the one tight grip on an area of life that the Lord wants to root out and sanctify, isn't it? Because he loves us. Even sometimes these idols will bring us joy. It seems, seems that they bring us Contentment or happiness or satisfaction. But then when we try to let go of them, it's very hard. That's when we know we must trust in God and forsake it. And this is the call of Christ. By faith, we are going to be called as his disciples to leave something behind. To forsake, to deny ourselves, right? Deny ourselves. To give up your grip on life and go and serve Christ. Well, let us consider for a moment, I'll just end with this. 
just as an encouragement, what is our, what is our heritage as Christians in this regard? Have other Christians had to let go of things, forsake things, leave things behind to follow Christ? Well, how about we just start with the disciples in the early church? Stephen was stoned. Philip was crucified. Matthew was slain with the sword. James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned and then clubbed. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Mark was dragged to his death. Jude was stoned. Bartholomew was beaten and then crucified. Thomas was thrust thrust through with a spear. Thaddeus was beaten with the club. Peter was crucified upside down. And John, remember John? John was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil from which he was removed unscathed and then he was exiled to Patmos the rest of his life. That's our heritage. Those those are our fathers in the faith. Amen? These men left all kinds of things even before they were martyred. Peter left his nets. And from the text, it seemed easy. Right? Leave your nets. I'll make you fishers of men. Oh, no problem. Leave my net. Drop my nets. That seemed easy. But when they questioned him after Gethsemane, he denied Jesus. Peter's self-preservation was then what he needed to forsake and repent of. But by God's grace, he did. Amen. And he rose up boldly to proclaim the name of Christ until his death. And by the way, just as an anecdote, anybody read the Fox's Book of Martyrs? Peter's death was amazing. I'll just read the excerpt from Foxes here. Peter was crucified. His head, remember he was crucified upside down. Remember that? Peter was crucified, his head being down, his feet upward, and himself so requiring because he was, he said, unworthy to be crucified after the same manner and form as his Lord was. So Peter... When he was facing death, he was threatened with crucifixion, but he pleaded not to be crucified as his Lord was because he was unworthy. So he experienced the more painful death at his own beckoning to honor his Lord. How many of us will choose a harder suffering, a letting go, a sacrificing, a giving up for our Lord? Yet this is our heritage and this is what we are called to. We are going to have to leave things behind in this life. Now, people leave things all the time, right? People leave jobs, people leave churches, people leave all kinds of things. But what are you going to leave for the sake of the kingdom of God? Can you leave behind besetting sins? Yes, and we should. Are you leaving behind your idols? Can we leave behind uh, uh, worldliness? Can we leave behind a tight grip on money? Yes, Yes, but this is a question of faith and trust in God because that's what it'll take. If you trusted God, that God will give you all that you need, you can leave those things behind, right? We must forsake and stay close to the good that God's given us. We must stay close to the righteous things that God has given us and be content there. No, rather be, be overwhelmed with gratitude for the good things God has given us. And Jesus ends with a promise. There's no one who's left all these things who shall shall not receive many times more 
in this present time and the age to come eternal life. We must leave that which is hindering us. We must leave those that threaten eternal life is what Jesus is saying. That idol, that money, that resistance. Again, it may be a good thing, but they must be left and forsaken to walk and follow Christ. And that's the case sometimes. But discerning the times and being aware of the culture and the context that we live in, knowing that the days are evil, as mentioned this morning, our temptation is much more likely that to be that of the young ruler, the young rich ruler. For what are, our, what are the idols of our day here in America? Money, stuff, materialism, right? Some, some have called it, Schaefer called it personal peace and affluence, right? Other idols include an undisturbed life, right? Avoidance of relational messiness, self-image, pride. But the or- exhortation to us tonight is that by faith, we are all called to be watchful for what we need to leave and forsake in our lives and what we need to stay close to in Christ. We will need to leave and forsake things, our sins, our idols, our temptations, the world, but we must cling tightly and never leave Christ and his word and his people and the church and the family God's given, graciously given you and his precepts to walk in. And, and, I, and there, there, I want to speak to the young people here for a moment, just, just in closing. Satan may seem to whisper in your ear. He may mock you. He may torment you. He may persuade you to leave good things, godly things. And your flesh may pull at you with all its might to cause you to sin, and the world may shout at you until you feel you must give in, but you must never, never leave the good things God's given you. Never. Peter was right. He said, see, we have left all and followed you. Amen. The disciples had left everything. They didn't just leave their nets and their jobs and their livelihoods. They, they left their, their lives. They were all martyred. They chose Christ and said to live is Christ, but to die is gain. The same is for us. And this is the call to be bold men of courage in Christ, to be strong women of faith. We must put down the cozy lifestyle that America is singing you into and pick up the call of Christ and carry it. it. This is what our brother prayed for of the persecuted church around the world. They're facing it. They're running into it. We run into this we're thrown into the Colosseum with the lions we can run towards those lions with no fear to be that much closer to our Christ and gain him remember that man will never receive salvation and eternal life by his works salvation through the gospel of Christ comes by faith and repentance which in themselves are only given by the grace and unmerited favor of God we must be on guard for idols in our life which can blind us, they can derail us, cut us off from the saving grace of Christ. And know this, following Christ will require us to leave something behind, to forsake, to sacrifice, possibly many things, to be a faithful follower of Jesus. May we walk by this in faith. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this teaching tonight, and God, we ask that you would work this in us, this faith, that we may indeed lean 
with faith and repentance into that which you are quickening us, that which you're calling us to forsake and leave in our life. Oh God, and by faith, would we hold tightly to those things you, you give us, the blessings, the riches, all the incredible, exceedingly great graces that you have poured out by the work of your hand. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.